The more you know, the better. I have never had any desire to be a so-called shock jock. I've never intended to offend or ridicule anyone's ideas. People have very strong opinions about their beliefs. They are passionate and very personal. And when it comes to the afterlife, it may be even more so. Mama died and went to heaven, and she's having a reunion with Papa and all the family up there. If that image comforts you, it is yours to hold on to. I'm not trying to create doubt to take anyone's faith. So you may do with my words today what you need to do with them. But if we are going to be called people of the book, as we are sometimes called, I think we must read and think very carefully. The Bible has always been central to my faith. It guides my words today, even if they are not exactly what you're expecting to hear from the Baptist minister about heaven and hell. Now, I could easily talk for two hours about this subject, much more easily two hours than 10 minutes, so I've distilled three points. Here we go. Number one, when we think about what the Bible says, we first need to remember how very different our understanding of the universe is from the biblical worldview. Yet that ancient cosmology is still at the center of the imagery that is popular to so many even though we live in a quantum world. In the narrative of Genesis 1, when God begins to create, God separates the primordial waters, waters which apparently, if you read literally, waters which apparently already existed. God comes and creates a dome, pushing back those waters beyond the heavens. And the earth and the underworld then become barriers for the chaotic waters beneath with dark waters above the heavens and dark waters beneath the earth. A two-dimensional universe frames the common understanding, heaven is above, hell is below. And this is so even though the heavens, plural, even though the heavens which God created are not God's home in the creation narrative and there is no hell at all in that story. Number two, a couple words for you to learn. You know I got to do that, you, you know. Nearly every time the English word heaven is found in our Old Testament, it is a translation of the Hebrew shamayim, which is a plural word meaning skies or the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the same is true in our Greek New Testament. Jesus did not teach his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, but the Father of us in tois uranus, which means the heavens, in the heavens. Now when we hear heaven, we think mama went to heaven, even though the image which probably comes to mind is really nowhere to be found explicitly in the Bible. Similarly, there are three biblical words that translate the English word hell. In ancient Judaism, Sheol was the abode of the dead. Much like the Catholic uh, idea of purgatory, everyone went to Sheol, the good and the bad, to await the final judgment. 
The Greek translation of Sheol is Hades. And the word Hades comes into the New Testament with that Jewish understanding. Hades is not a place of final punishment. This shadowy underworld was just a holding place as souls awaited the general resurrection at the end of time. Now, as a little aside, the reason Jesus' resurrection was surprising in Jewish thought is that the Jews did anticipate resurrection, but a resurrection for all, not just for one. The physical bodies of all the righteous would be raised at the end of the age for a very physical, embodied life in a new Jerusalem. While most translations do not convey this distinction about Sheol and Hades separate from hell, the New Revised Standard, which we use for worship, keeps those words Sheol and Hades. If the Hebrew word Sheol appears in the text, they transliterate it and it becomes Sheol in English. Hades in Greek becomes Hades in English. When the New Revised Standard Version uses the word hell, it is the Greek word Gehenna which is translated, and this is really interesting. The Hinnom Valley separated, uh, excuse me, surrounded Jerusalem on the west and the south. It was also known as Gehenna. I have been to Gehenna. Today it is beautiful. It's developed and there are homes and there's a park there. Hell has become a national park in Israel. In Jesus' day, however, Gehenna was the city landfill. Refuse, including the carcasses of animals, even the bodies of peasants who could not afford to be buried, were cast into the valley of Gehenna. That trash there was often burned, and so fires, smoldering fumes and smoke often rose from the valley floor. You could see it in Jerusalem. It was a nasty place. When Jesus says to his disciples one day, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. He is using a graphic picture that all his hearers would have understood. If your eye causes you to sin, he is saying, it would be better to lose it than for that sin to destroy you, for your whole self to be thrown into Gehenna. That's the word, thrown into Gehenna. Not hell of some eternal punishment, but that smoldering valley of refuse. What a waste that would be. Because most Bibles translate all three of those words, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, they translate all of those words as hell, this nuance is lost on most. And painting with such a broad brush further it reinforces a heaven above and a hell of punishment below. Number three, let's go to the book of Revelation for just a moment. The book of Revelation is the source of many people's understandings, and Revelation does picture the throne of God with angels surrounding, and much of the language in the book is stark and frightening. But I am a little confused as how this book has become the ultimate source on heaven and hell because, well, just let me read to you. Listen. At the end of time, after the final judgment, John says... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the home of God is among mortals. In this beautiful picture, the righteous do not end up dwelling in heaven, sitting up on a cloud strumming their harps with the angels. The home of God is on earth. And if we, need, and if we read just as literally, the unrighteous do not spend their eternity down in hell. John says, I saw a great white throne and books were opened and all were judged. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So in John's vision, there is a lake of fire. It's graphic stuff, but it's not hell, properly speaking. Hades that place of the dead, and hell itself are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, John was writing to a people who were suffering great persecution, and his strange vision is a message of hope, because if God is finally going to destroy all death for a people experiencing hell on earth, well, that must be the best news of all. So we have a pre-scientific worldview which has led to a picture of heaven above and hell below. And we have a host of words, none of which corresponds precisely to the now common understanding of heaven and hell. And we have an apocalyptic vision of good news, but one that has often been misunderstood. And to those three, we could add some smattering of Scripture and the Persian influence of Zoroastrianism, and we could talk about the dualistic philosophy of Plato. Plato was Greek, and the New Testament worldview was immersed in his Hellenistic culture. We could talk about a 14th century Italian poet named Dante Alighieri and the way Dante's Inferno has seared our imaginations of hell we could talk about how Elizabethan conceptualizations of the afterlife and even hallmark marketing have popularized our pictures of heaven and hell. And to be honest, if we want to talk about heaven and hell, we would have to talk about how the church has abused those notions for institutional gain. Church authorities have so often succumbed to the great temptation to use the promise of reward and the threat of eternal punishment as a means of controlling you folks, the masses. Fear and promise to control the masses. Through thousands of years of speculation and augmentation and yes, divine revelation, the ideas of heaven and hell have continued to change. Even in an increasingly secular world, they hold great sway. So it's very easy to understand how a preacher could come to Luke's parable for today and say, you see, Lazarus went up to heaven and the rich man went down to be tormented in the fires of hell, even though it would have been clear to all of Jesus' hearers that Lazarus and the rich man were both in Hades, separated not by a physical gulf, but by the tormenting lack of compassion that had always separated them. 
As Amy pointed out, it was the lack of compassion that continued to separate the rich man from the poor man in the fires, in his torment in Hades. It is not unreasonable to believe that life does not end when we cease breathing. Though in the end, we cannot know what the afterlife holds without experiencing it. And maybe that unknowing is important for us. John's revelation says the culmination of human life The culmination of all human growth and development will be to experience God among us, with us. The home of God is among mortals. So Jesus told us not to long for what is next, but to work as we pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. If we believed in that kind of heaven, earthly and eternal. Just imagine how we might change the world for those living in hell on earth today. May it be so. Amen. We are so easily distracted. Give us a story about heaven and hell A guy on the corner, sick and out of luck with a dog licking his sores because gross factor always distracts. Throw in an out of luck fellow headed to heaven while a rich man burns in hell. And it's understandable how we can miss the point of this story. I'm grateful that Russ covered the whole after this life info and got that out of the way. Because as he already knows, it's not the point of this grand tale at all. Surely Jesus knew how easily distracted we are, which is why I really question his technique on this one. I wonder if the people of his day got it, or were they as easily distracted as we are? The point of the whole tall tale is for us to pay attention right here and right now to the issues, the troubles, the pain and suffering, the torment, the despair, the poverty, the sickness, the hunger, the chaos, the homelessness, the beggars, the down and out. Pay attention right here, right now to the hells on this earth so that we can do something about them right here and right now. The rich man wants to get the message back to the living, to the family, to his family, so they won't make his same mistake. And Abraham reminds him, they, like you, already know. You just didn't pay attention, rich man. And note that he doesn't have a name. I think it's because there were so many of them. Why call names when it's probably most of us? We already know about the Lazaruses, rich man. We don't need someone rising from the dead to tell us what we already know. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. I can't fix this. I can do what I can do, and I can do that well, but I can't fix this. 
Now, what is the this? Well, you fill in the blank. I can't fix the education system. I can't fix homelessness or hunger. I can't fix the prison industrial complex. I can't fix what's happening in Ukraine. I can't fix any of our broken down systems. But I can do what I can do. And I can do that well, but I can't fix any of these things. I can't fix many things, even on a personal level, in family systems, mine or yours. But I can do what I can do, and I can do that well. But I can't fix anybody else's dysfunction when a whole lot of the time I can't even fix my own dysfunction. I can't fix the drama. I can't fix the meanness and the sarcasm that has caused so much of the great divide in our country. I can't fix apathy. I can't fix the broken relationships. I can't fix fears and worries that come with unwanted and scary diagnoses. I can't fix cancer. I can't fix infectious disease. And I cannot fix a global pandemic and what it has done to us. But I can do what I can do. And I can do that well. But I can't fix most things. The trouble is because we can't fix things like we want them to be fixed, we give up, we lose heart, we become defeated and distracted, and we forget all about the I can do what I can do and I can do that well part. The story points us to notice all the Lazaruses at our gates and in our paths. Right now is all we have to do what we can do and do that well. But we are so easily distracted by wanting to fix things that we often fail to do the things that we can do. We're so easily distracted by blaming and shaming the Lazaruses at our gate that we withhold doing the things we can do. We are so easily distracted by our theologies and our ideologies that serve as superficial divides that we can't see the common humanity to do the things we can do. We're so distracted by worry that we are immobilized to do the things we can do. And so then we are paralyzed by our distractions when all the world needs is for us to do the things we can do and to do those things well. Rob Bell has written a book entitled Love Wins, a book, on, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. He uses this story in a piece of his book to get right to the heart of faith. I'm going to quote a paragraph from Rob Bell's book. The story about the rich man and Lazarus, he says, was an incredibly sharp warning for Jesus' audience, particularly the religious leaders who Luke tells us what they were there listening. He warns those people to rethink how they view the world because there would be serious consequences for ignoring the Lazaruses outside the gate. To reject the Lazaruses 
was to reject God. Bell points out that this was a brilliant, surreal, poignant, subversive, loaded story. Jesus teaches again and again that the gospel is about a death that leads to life. It's a pattern, a truth, a reality that comes from losing your life and then finding it. This rich man Jesus tells us about hasn't yet figured out he's still clinging to his ego, his status, his pride. Give me some water. I'm thirsty. He's unable to let go of the world he has constructed, which puts him on top and Lazarus on the bottom, the world in which Lazarus is serving him. He's dead and he hasn't died. He's in Hades, but he still hasn't died the kind of actual death that brings life. He's alive in death, but in profound torment because he's living with the realities of not properly dying the kind of death that leads a person into the only kind of life worth living. Bell concludes this part by saying, What we see in Jesus' story about the rich man and Lazarus is an affirmation that there are all kinds of hells. There are individual hells. There are community and society-wide hells. And Jesus is teaching us here to take those hells very seriously. So here's what I say. Be on the lookout for Lazarus. He's everywhere. And so is Jesus. Every single time you do what you can do and do that well, then Jesus has shown up for Lazarus yet again. Let that be your contribution to fixing the world. May it be so. Amen.